lifepodcasts.fm. This podcast is a Prime Media Broadcasting production. People are reshaping the mindset of the masses. Africa State of Mind. On this episode of Africa State of Mind, we speak to Femi Oke, host of Al Jazeera's The Stream and co-founder, moderate the panel. In 2007, Femi Oke's work in Africa was recognized by the Economic Community of West African States and the African Communications Agency with the presentation of the African Achievers Award in 2007. Femi was also named Nigerian Media Personality of the Year in 2007 and picked up the Interaction Media Award in 2008 for her commitment to broadcasting the complex issues of Africa. She began her journalism career at the age of 14, and she still continues to fight to tell authentic African stories. They told me when I was hosting Inside Africa, we cannot send anyone to cover these elections. And I said, why not? And they said, we we just don't have any money. We've just blown all our money. We have no budget. We can't do it. I said, these are the most important elections. This is a, a fascinating story. We do so many terrible stories from the African continent. This one is a really positive one. Let's do it. I said, we don't have any money. Sorry. I went away and conspired with my uh, Liberian producer. Femi Oke is passionate about African stories and the impact they have on Africans. She lauded the Wakanda movement Black Panther started. There was something about that film, and I'm almost rolling my eyes internally, that it should be a stupid comic book hero film that turns the world onto possibilities on the continent. But whatever it takes, however we got there, I think that was a game changer. And it feels really silly. But it's also really silly to think that Africans are not incredibly competent and brilliant. So if it takes something as as trivial as a Hollywood movie, bring it on. I feel that there's something about that film that really helped the rest of the world understand what we as Africans already know. Femi is also fending off marriage proposals from suitors all over the world on social media like Twitter. Welcome to another fascinating episode of Africa State of Mind. Make sure to join our Facebook group, Africa State of Mind. On Twitter, follow us at Africa State Mind. Rate us on iTunes or wherever you find your podcasts. It helps others find us too. Let's get into this conversation with Femi Oke, who tells us about her upbringing and reveals how she fell in love with journalism. My parents were really perplexed because they came from Nigeria to study in the UK in the 1960s. And so they were, they, they were Lagos. They were Lagos uh, young people, yeah. young students. Uh, and they knew nothing about the UK other than what they'd seen on sort of the newsreels and, and on TV. And uh, they knew nothing about British society. And so when I turned up and I didn't want to be a lawyer or a doctor, they were a bit perplexed. And it was only when I finished university, finished working at the BBC and was on CNN and my relatives were calling my parents to say that they had seen me on TV. That was only when they kind of got an inkling of what it was that I actually do. Exactly. It's like, uh your parents are like, she has made it to see our daughter. We have raised her well. (laughs) Once they see you on like yeah. a, on CNN, that must have been awesome. But now for you, you know what I'm really fascinated about um, is where you actually got this uh, love and passion for telling stories and going into journalism. Um, was there anybody in your family who was involved in that way or is it just something that was in your blood, I guess? Nobody in my family, wow. uh, nobody understood it. Everybody was doing other professions. I have nobody who's in journalism in my family at all. And um 
I'm okay with that because I think that's a really great way to become a broadcaster. You're not um, hanging around with, you know, your auntie or uncle, your brother or sister who's in the business, and then you just, you know, slip into the business behind them. Mm. I had no background whatsoever, nobody to rely on, and it was all about um, what I could learn from other people, what I had within myself. Because a lot of people think if you don't know somebody, you're not mm. going to make it. You just have to be convinced that you have stories to tell, that you can get better at doing uh, whatever it is you're doing. Are you doing radio? Are you doing TV? Are you doing multi-platform journalism, which is more and more um, how people are getting into uh, the broadcast business? You don't need to know anybody. You just need to get better at what you're doing. I really love that because, I mean, just even from traveling around the continent in general, um, it, it really is everybody always thinks in order to get somewhere, you have to know someone. And I think that that's such an important message to share with young people within the continent that you can actually just break out on your own. And if you're determined and committed enough, you can get to global heights similar to what you have. Absolutely. And sometimes it's there's, there's hard work their strategy I still strategize I have a little digital post-it on my laptop about things that I'm going to do the Mm. next few things I'm going to do and how do I get to do them so I used to have tons of post-its stuck around my bedroom about how I was going to strategize and then of course some of it has to be right time right place and so some of that is beyond your control but you kind of have to just think, okay, how am I going to get to that next step yeah. and work it out? Now, your first story when you were 14 years old, because, I mean, I don't even know if I was thinking about anything more than like a song <laughs> at the age of 14. But your, the first story that you that you um, put together, what sort of um, work were you reporting at the age of 14? Well, I worked for a radio station, which is still around, called LBC. So it was talk radio. And they had a weekend show called Young London, which was for youngsters. And I would go in and talk to them about uh, stories and ideas that young people were cared about and go out and do little reports. And I was tiny. And <laughs> I can't believe anybody took me seriously. <laughs> I'd, I'd ring up. There's a, guy, there's, there's a guy who does all the hats for the Queen. Mm. Uh, the Queen being uh, Queen Elizabeth II, that yes. Queen. And he would do Philip Tracy. He would do a, all the hats, a fancy hat. And I sent him a letter because this was back in the, when would it have been? Do, 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 uh, early 80s. Yeah. And doing some subtraction here, uh, late 70s, early 80s. Uh, I sent him a letter and he said, yes, come, come and visit me. Went to visit him, did a little interview. And I just interviewed these people. And I was a tiny, tiny little kid. I mean, I'm quite, I'm quite useful looking. But I think even when I was 13, 14, I must have looked like I was about eight. Exactly. So, yeah. But people were very generous with their time and were really, really helpful. And what I do now is I realize that and those people have moved on and I can't really go back and thank them and they probably won't even remember me. Mm. But what I do is when youngsters and students do that to me and send me an email, I'm like, sure, of course, let's have a coffee, let's have a chat, let's strategize Mm. together. And so I continue to do that and pay it forward. Sure, that's incredible. And and now, um, while you were at uni, just uh, you know, what principles do you think that you learnt um, working and studying at the same time, but working in your field of interest? How do you think that you know that kind of groomed you um, moving into the future? I am not sure that my degree, which is in English literature, <laughs> has any day to day usefulness. <laughs> you sound like it's really not that 
helpful. <laughs> yeah. But what you do learn, I have to say very quickly, for all the English literature grads out there, is what you do learn is the ability to study mm-hmm. um, and to uh, be able to take ideas, write ideas, to be able to write is really, really helpful mm. and write well. Uh, and also the uh, time management, which I was terrible at at university and still not that great at right now. <laughs> those sort of very basic skills about study, what life, work, balance, and also, which probably is the most important thing, meeting people from different backgrounds. And as a journalist, this is very, very helpful mm-hmm. yeah, to get into other people's cultures, understand different people. People come from different parts of the country, different parts of the world, and you're all together as young people. And what do you learn from each other? I think that's probably a big takeaway from universities is people were meeting for the first time somebody mm-hmm. who was black. Um, I was meeting for the first time somebody who was extremely wealthy mm. and and those were things that both of us you know both sides learned from uh, and kind of shaped us as, as we became uh, young adults so I think those those elements are very useful particularly when you've got an arts degree like um, English literature so yeah. it's nice that I know you know the basis of, of where uh, how it should develop in the Gothic period and where Beowulf came from and all that sort of thing. But I don't talk about it in everyday life. Yes. And nobody ever asks you, what is your degree? <laughs> what, 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 what kind of honours degree did you get? And I was really upset when I left university and I found that nobody cared what degree I had. After all that work. <laughs> yes. Yeah. They just wanted to know if I could do the job. Yeah. Anybody always wants to know, can you do the work? Mm. And Femi, when you think of what the definition of a journalist is, how, how would you define that? And I guess I asked that question just in light of, I mean, I, I, telling you is like telling somebody who knows about it, just the way that journalism and journalists in general seem to be under the under attack, you know, and then also you have another extreme of, you know, where sometimes people are journalists and we just kind of think that, well, maybe you're not really a journalist without throwing too much shade. But for you, when you think of what a journalist is and their role is in a democracy, how would you define that? I think some, a journalist is a communicator, an mm. expert communicator with a responsibility to their audience. Mm. There are so many different kinds of journalism right now. There is uh, data journalism, which is incredibly important, which is crunching numbers and figures and working out from just looking at stats, mm. stories and why stories are very important. There obviously uh, sports journalism, entertainment, politics, uh, and I feel that there's more and more varieties of different ways of storytelling than there ever has been before. Mm. Documentaries, documentaries are also journalism. What I do on the stream, which is very accessible mm. uh, and uh, can be as part of the storytelling and as part of the information sharing as the hosts are, that is also journalism. So, so many different kinds. So I feel that it is... The responsibility of the audience and the communicating was very, very important. I was originally taught about being objective, and I think that is very important. Mm -hmm. But I think more important than that is share with your audience as many different perspectives of this story as you can, because there isn't one side and then another Mm -hmm. side in life. Life is not that simple. Life is not black and white. Mm -hmm. Life is more sort of shades of black, white, grey, all in between, and then pops of colour. And I think as, a, as I get older in the profession, 
I realize that. And also sometimes you're doing a story and the story might be about child abuse mm-hmm. and there isn't a one side and another side and you're not doing the story justice if you do well on the other side there's this because actually sometimes you should just do explain the story from the perspective of the person who suffered so so many different ways i think what you're referring to is the way that in certain parts of the world journalism is quite divisive Mm. Um, and certainly on our on our continent on africa on the african continent it's a really hard profession to do um and and uh and politicians and authorities want to sway you. They don't like what you say. They might turn off the internet. That's a new thing, turning off the internet. Um, it's very annoying. For somebody who spends a lot of time online, it's extremely frustrating. But there are ways that people who don't want the truth to get out will try and stop that truth from getting out. And I think that, again, is, is part of the role of a journalist. Somebody mentioned to me just recently on Twitter, I said, well, you're an African opinion leader. And I said, no, I'm a journalist. And that person thought that was exactly the same thing. Mm. And I very rarely say my opinion because it doesn't matter what I think. It matters what the story is and have I done a good job of telling the story. And then your opinion matters not my opinion. I mean, Femi, when you say that, in that my opinion. Yeah, in, <laughs> when you say that, that's a hundred percent true in terms of the way that you do your job. I think one of the the reasons why um, people um, enjoy watching you do your work is that you really are objective, and you kind of take yourself out of the story, and you 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 don't centralize it around yourself, which is awesome. And I think just your entire team at um, at Al Jazeera, the stream, it's the same thing. It's a kind of show that literally. Nobody, for example, would have thought that the story about Bobby Wine would have made sense on a global platform. And you guys brought it to a global platform and you made it make sense to people from across the continent. Because even within the continent, we don't have a sharing of information and then also around the world. So for that, I think congratulations to you and your entire team, because that's a balance that nobody's able to strike. We work so hard. Thank you for saying that. And the team would be so appreciative. We work so hard and we sit in every editorial meeting and say, okay, so if I'm not in this country, how do I understand this story? What does this story say and how does it resonate universally? And how do we tell this story so people care who are not Ugandan? How do people care about what's happening in Uganda if they're not Ugandan? How do we also do this story so that if you're not uh, supporting Bobby Wine and you are Ugandan but you feel that we're also doing a good job and a fair job and and that's why we try not to say well I think this and I think that I, it, I think one of the things that has happened in journalism globally is that journalists feel more comfortable telling everybody what they think mm-hmm. and they're more of an editorial line with journalism that's a different style of communicating mm-hmm. I still think our very small audiences deserve for us to say here is the information here is as much as we think that we can find about this story that you will find helpful and useful and that we've been able to dig up for you now you make Mm. your decision we're not here to do that for you Mm. i mean also just one of the shows you you guys have just put together that was done like again in an excellent way Uh, because you know in my head i'm also nigerian (coughs) i'm uganda slash nigerian but anyway (laughs) I just <laughs> think everybody is, not, is Nigerian. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Nigerian, so, you know, really. it's like, yeah. 
But it's like I just loved <laughs> the the story. I mean, the the episode that you just had with different journalists and different points of view about the upcoming Nigerian elections. It literally just yeah. gave so many different angles around it because because I spent so much time in Nigeria. I thought that I knew. You know, I thought that this is the way that everything should be going. And then as I listened, I thought, wow, this is not as, you know, as black and white as what people may seem. So I really thought that that episode was extremely well done. But I mean, I'm sure you guys hear this all the time. I don't, it's just because it's really just good to be able to go to a place and find those kind of stories. Yeah, we don't always. So it's nice to get that feedback. What I love when, um, I travel and people come up to me and they say things like you've just said, which is that, almost echoing back the conversations we have as a team. We are we care so much about the topics that we will go back and forth and should we say this and should we say that and where do we put this? I it's the most dedicated team I, I've ever been uh, had the pleasure to work with. I've worked with lots of amazing teams on radio and on television. But the care with which we put together a broadcast so that we try and reflect what the world is thinking and feeling, Mm. how do we tell this story? Sometimes you will see, and I'm sure you've seen this on international TV, people talking about, uh, say, South Africa, for Mm. instance, and there won't be any South Africans on the panel. (laughs) Yes. How is that possible? Exactly. Doing that, (laughs) like those panels they have about... um, uh, uh, gender parity and everybody on the panel is a man. It's and like, I, how does this work? It annoys me. Yeah. yeah. It annoys me when you have panels with experts who, and there are wonderful experts who are outside of the continent, and that's totally fine. But to for us on the stream, what we try and do is if we're talking about a country, everybody on that panel should be from that country, if mm. that's all possible. Mm. Majority so, of them should be. So we, we try really hard, and I think people notice that. Yeah, no, most definitely. Now, uh, there's a beautiful story, I mean, of, of how you were, how you got into CNN. I just, I wanted you to share the story because, I mean, I've obviously, like, studied you. <laughs> but I'd like you to tell the story in your own words as to how that came about um, when you were working. I, I believe you were at BBC and then you decided to transition into CNN, if I'm not mistaken. But just because I think that there's so many nuggets within that story. So if you could maybe share it. All right. So when are we talking here? In the 1990s, late 1990s, I saw an advert which was starting up an international weather bureau at CNN, because when I joined CNN, I was in the international weather department. I saw an advert, and I thought, oh, I could do that. Uh, And I used to uh, do weather forecasts in the UK, and the way that happened was I used to work at a, a, a TV show, an entertainment TV show, and in the same complex, there was a weather department. And uh, as a British person, also Nigerian, but as a British person, I was obsessed by what the weather would be like because it six different kinds of weather in one day. So mm. I'd always pop into the weather studio and say, hey guys, what's the weather going to be like before I went out reporting? Well, when my TV job was finished, I got to the end of my contract and I'm thinking, what shall I do? And I thought, I know, I love, I love the weather. I'll do some weather. I'm a really decent storyteller. I know how to tell a good story. I love the weather. I know I could learn how to do weather casting. So I popped into the weather studio. They gave me an audition and then I started doing the weather. I did the weather for... Uh, uh, the local TV station in the West Midlands, and then I eventually ended up doing the weather for uh, ITV, uh, local ITV in London. Yeah. 
So I was a weather girl in the 1990s. So I had I had form, I had background. I didn't just suddenly say I can do, do. international weather. Yeah. So I sent them some tapes, sent CNN some tapes. And I was watching EastEnders one night and a gentleman from CNN rang me up from Atlanta and he said, hello, is this Sammy okay? And I said, yes. And he said, this is CNN. Not with that great voice, not this is CNN. <laughs> <laughs> um, we want you to come to Atlanta to do an, uh, an audition. And I was, first of all, I didn't believe it was real. And then the, and second of all, I'm just thinking, I need to learn where all the countries in the whole world are if I'm going to do international weather. So I could put off how long it was that I could come. And I, I would put off the date when they were going to fly me over. And they would Miss OK, when are you coming to Atlanta? So, OK, I picked a date, had an atlas, was still trying to learn where all the countries in the world were because I'm going to have to point them out if I got the job. Exactly. I uh, turned up at the CNN headquarters in Atlanta and the interview took an entire day and I met the head of CNN International, the vice president of CNN International, all of the meteorologists who helped me produce the weather bulletins. They would just leave me in rooms to see how I would interact with people and I did an audition and they said, Hmm, you should do another one later on today. <laughs> so it wasn't a great audition. So then I did another one. And uh, literally, this went on for eight hours. Can you imagine doing an interview for eight yeah, hours? That must I, have been so draining. Well, there were harder things to do in life than an interview <laughs> for eight hours. But it was a very long interview. And every moment you knew that people were staring at you and looking at you and like, making notes, etc., so then I went back to the hotel at the end of the day, and then that next morning they rang me up and said, yes, you've got the job. When can you move to America? So that was my, that's my CNN story, but there's a little preamble to that. I know it's a very long story, but there's a little preamble to that, which was that I had heard that they were setting up this weather department much, much earlier, like two years earlier. Mm. And I wrote to them and said, I'd love to do this job. And they said, no, we don't have a job. And I kept that letter, that rejection letter, sure. and I saved it. And I have it next to the letter. It says, congratulations, we'd love you oh. to join us at CNN. So sure. there's the, the story there. And the story there is, one is apply for jobs before you know that they're actually available. Mm. Uh, and also keep keep going. Anybody, anybody, anybody can be that person that is on CNN. I think that every time I look at CNN and Al Jazeera, we all sit back and watch these big international networks and think, well, how do I get on these international networks? And it, it is possible. It's not something that you can't do. You can do it. I did it. All my colleagues did it. And one interesting story, one final story for you about my life at CNN was that I turned up and my uh, producer for Inside Africa uh, is Liberian. Mm. And he said when he saw my face on CNN, he was in shock because it was a proper black person <laughs> on CNN. Yeah, because yeah. they had a habit of hiring people who were fairly fair-skinned. And, mm. and that was a, a trend, certainly in the States, for a very long time. Mm. So to see a proper black, like brown, deep brown person. Like a chocolate, said, yes. beautiful, yes. you know, like Niger <laughs> babe. Hey. I was so excited. <laughs> and so I think that's really important. And I know that for... For kids who say, hey, I grew up with watching you do the weather on CNN, that it was really important that they saw somebody that was dark-skinned and brown. Yeah. I, I know you can get much darker skin than me, but I think it was, it was really important for them. And kudos to CNN for actually 
making those steps and, and changing how they thought about what an anchor looks like. And then the heart of my tales came to me, Macabo, uh, Zane Virgie, Manita Rajpal, um, uh, Zane Asher. Um, I should just say, these are all my friends. I know them all. So, mm. you know, the women of color. Yeah, all came flooding into CNN. I mean, you know what I what I love about that is that I think often that when we think about the whole issue around uh, colorism and dark skin versus light black skin and what is black, you know, we I've never actually thought of how it would affect because we kind of don't think that it would affect the news world in that way. Do you know what I mean? So when when you when you articulated that story, I was like, oh, that's quite fascinating because I know that a lot of people, even now to date, when when it comes to selection of who's going to do what, it's like, okay, we need only this shade of black, and then the rest of you can. <laughs> it's kind of like we're all black. Well, it's an American thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's American. I mean, when I'm in South Africa, or which I was just a few weeks ago, or when I'm in Nigeria or Uganda or Nigeria. Or, uh, or um, Kenya, you, we don't notice it because our um, newscasters, our correspondents, they're black, mm. they're African, so we don't notice it. You only notice it when you go to international media or other countries' media, and then you'll notice that the the ratio and uh, between black and different colors, or even Latino, because lots of Latino people are saying in the States there aren't enough Latinos, there aren't enough mm. people being represented uh, on the media, uh, on TV, in films, and that's a real big push. But that's something that's happening in the States right now, mm. um, and also in parts of the UK right now as well. But we're, we're really blessed, I think, when um, we're on our own continent and we see ourselves. It's when we look at international media, we don't necessarily see ourselves or see our stories. Mm. So the more of us there are, the more of our stories we see, the more context um, and accuracy our stories will be told. And, and now, what's been the most important story that you have um, been able to tell or, or, do you know what I mean? I mean, I know you've done so many, but is there one that particularly stands out that you were glad to have been a part of? There's a story I had to fight for. I think the, the most important story is the one that you're trying to get on the air, that you're struggling to get on the air for different reasons. There are all reasons behind the scenes and, and reasons with the guests and the contributors that make a story sometimes difficult for it to happen. And I think that's the most important story, the, the fight you're in right, mm. right at the moment. But I would say one that I will always remember, one that I often talk about is uh, the Liberian elections mm. for uh, Alan Johnson Sleaf and George Weir. Um, and this was back in, let me see, 2006, I believe, mm-hmm. five, six, six, seven. It's when Ellen Johnson Sleeve became the first African female head of state. Yes. CNN has just spent so much money covering Hurricane Katrina. And they told me when I was hosting Inside Africa, we cannot send anyone to cover these elections and I said, why not? And they said, we, we just don't have any money. We've just blown all our money. We have no budget. We can't do it. I said, these are the most important elections. This is a, a fascinating story. We do so many terrible stories from the African continent. This one is a really positive one. Let's do it. I said, we don't have any money. Sorry. I went away and conspired with my uh, Liberian producer, Bill, and I found a fellowship. It was the National Association of Black Journalists, which I'm a member of in the States. Mm. And they had a fellowship to cover the Liberian elections. I spent an entire weekend 
stayed up all night thinking of all the incredible stories I could tell, wrote them, pitched them, put them in my fellowship application. The next week, the National Association of Black Journalists and the UNDP, who were working together, said, yes, you're one of the few journalists we are taking to Liberia. So then I went to my vice president, okay. I am going, I've got a fellowship, I'm going to Liberia, and she's, she's like, whoa, okay. And then she said, but we're not going to send you a camera person, and I can't do, you can't do TV without, without a camera, camera yeah. Oh, we're not going to send you a camera person. I said, you have to, how am I going to do a story without a camera person? So they said, okay, and they sent me the cameraman from South Africa, from CNN's bureau in South Africa, and we've been firm friends ever since. He's now based in um, he's now based in Nairobi, and he works out of zero, so we're still good mates. And we worked our backsides off sure. all the way through these Liberian elections. And um, now, when CNN talks about their highlights for things they've done in covering Africa, on their list of highlights is covering the Liberian elections where Ellen Johnson Sleeve became the first African head of state. And my little note that's not there is, yeah, but it wouldn't have happened if I hadn't begged you exactly. and got the fellowship and begged for the camera person. So I think the moral for that story is don't give up. And there may be another way. I always think that no is on the way to the answer to getting yes, which is why I'm really irritating sometimes to work with. But the other thing is that it only takes a couple of people to get our stories out there. Mm. We, it, it can be done by it was myself and my Liberian producer, Bill, and we worked really hard at getting the fellowship, getting out there, begging for the camera person, worked really hard. And so it doesn't take a lot of people. It only takes a couple of people. You Sometimes you look around and say, why is somebody not doing this? And the somebody could be you. Definitely. Um, I could speak to you forever. Like, I literally feel that I could just, like, grab a cup of tea and just, like, listen to you, honestly speaking. <laughs> I just love the fact that um, you're, I just love talking to people who are passionate about what it is that they do. Uh, so, I really love what I do. Can you tell? I can tell. It's, like, <laughs> it's really incredible, though, um, and it's quite contagious. So um, just uh, two more questions before we let you go. So if, if you're um, a, an African girl and you're sitting in whatever part of the continent may be and you want to become a journalist what sort of advice would you give them um obviously because the dynamics within the continent are a little bit more challenging um you know unfortunately but what sort of advice would you give them with regards to getting into journalism i would always say work locally which is what i did i was on my local radio station when Mm. i was really young And then when I went to university, I worked for my local BBC station. And that gives you a route into the business. So if you start local, then you can go national. Mm. Uh, If you start next door, then you can, you know, go to the capital. So that's how I would start. And that's how I started. And everyone's route is very different. I used to ask people when I was a kid, how did you get started in journalism? Every single person had an absolutely different story and I couldn't model myself on anybody, which is really great because it means that then you make your own way, you create your own story. If you want to be a doctor, there's only really one way you can be a doctor. You can't go, I'm going to forge my own path to being a doctor. <laughs> Nobody wants to go through exactly. that doctor. <laughs> Everybody wants to know you've done the right exams. Exactly. Uh, but as a journalist, there are many, many different ways. And, and you'll note that my degree is not in journalism. Mm. My degree is in English literature. Mm. I learned everything that I know about journalism from working 
in radio stations, working in TV stations around the world, not in a classroom. Because the best journalist classes are ones where you actually go out and you work at networks mm. and you work in the field. And so I did all of my journalism, all of my studying, all of my learning and continue to do that in the field. So I would say start locally. I often get emails from people who want to come and work at Al Jazeera and they're at school or want to come and work at, uh, go to work at CNN um, and they're just finishing university. And I would say start local. And it's very hard for someone to just say, well, you're a fantastic student. Now you come and do the news on CNN. That really doesn't happen. Yes. Um, so I would say start local and then build build your, your resume, build up your CV, and then it will be a natural next step. And then um, when you think of the phrase Africa state of mind, how would you, how would you define that in, in your mind? Irrepressible, nice. always. Mm-hmm. Whatever happens to us as a continent, there's always another day, another time to rise. I, uh, it's funny, when I, I used to live in South Africa when I was at CNN. I, I lived in Melville, um, which is um, a little suburb in Johannesburg. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. one of my favorite places to live in my whole life. And... Um, and at that time, so when was this? 2007, that mm. time people were talking about an African renaissance and Africa is rising, but I think Africa is always doing that. Africa is always reinventing itself and building and, and growing. And I, I think uh, something that made me smile a lot last year was that the world was beginning to appreciate Africa more. People who know, mm. who are international, know how amazing our continent is and all the countries are and how amazing Africans are. But a lot of people don't know that and they'll watch you know, mainstream media outside of, of the continent and, and, and get very bad ideas about what our continent is like. And then comes along Black Panther. Exactly, which changes, it changed the narrative totally. It it. And mm. I was just, this is phenomenal. I was laughing a lot. We did a show last year about the impact of Black Panther and how, how the continent loves Black Panther. Mm. But it did something for people's mind. It made them see the continent in a different way. Maybe it was the fact that the mostly all-black cast was so incredibly talented mm. that you saw so many little bits of African culture in a fictional movie. Mm. But there was something about that film, and I'm almost rolling my eyes internally, that it should be a stupid comic book hero film that turns the world onto possibilities on the continent. But whatever it takes, however we got there, I think that was a game changer. And it feels really silly. But it's also really silly to think that Africans are not incredibly competent and brilliant. So if it takes something as as trivial as a Hollywood movie, bring it on. I feel that there's something about that film that really helped the rest of the world understand what we as Africans already know. We're already living in Wakanda. We just need a bit more work. Exactly. I totally agree. Femi, it's been such a pleasure talking to you. Honestly speaking, I am. Uh, I love your work. I think that it's 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 not so often that you 
see somebody doing their work and you really admire their work and then you get to speak to them and then you're like, they're even more amazing than, than they work. And your work is so brilliant for me to say that you as a person, you just seem even more amazing than what I, what I could have imagined is just beyond. You represent Africa in the best way that, you, you know, in the most amazing way. And I love that. And also just in general, we're looking forward to seeing how much further you, you'll be going because you represent all of us. I think every time we see you, we, we are having our own what kind of moments. We're like, yes, girl, yes. <laughs> so, <laughs> thank you so much. It's a, it's a pleasure to be on this series. I, I really enjoy talking to you too. Thank you. And then, oh, one last thing. Um, I believe it's uh, somebody from Hashtag Fix Niger said, hello, Femi, I like you. Are you single? If you're single, let's start talking. Sincerely, Femi, I want to marry you. Nigerian from Anbara State, email <laughs> I was just checking your Twitter feed and I saw that Valentine's Day has come yeah, early for you. Yeah, I, I do I do get some I do get marriage proposals on Twitter and then what's weird what's even more weird is that people on Twitter say, Yes, you should marry that person and I am just a little concerned about my Twitter friends about how easily they saw that people should get married. <laughs> exactly. Femi uh, and one and one one little side one little side note to that is Femi in Yoruba means marry me. Oh lovely. Okay, that makes sense. Because they say, marry me, marry me, marry me, and Femi actually means marry me or love me. So there's a, there's a little double entendre to my name. Oh, definitely. And I wouldn't be doing any justice if I didn't ask you, what is the one Nigerian dish that you miss like, or that you love to have? Like, What's your, what's your go-to Nigerian dish? Really good jollof rice. That's a whole new conversation about who makes the best jollof rice. Because uh-huh, my next question was going to be way. about what about Ghanaian jollof rice? <laughs> but let me not. I, I also I love Ghanaian jollof rice too. Yeah. Um, but you know what? The only reason Ghanaian jollof rice is Ghanaian jollof rice is because of colonialism, right? Yeah. Actually, who decided this was Ghana? And who decided this was Nigeria? You have just settled the argument for once and for all. Jollof them. rice it's is jollof rice. Jollof rice. Uh-huh. Exactly. <laughs> also, fried plantain. If I smell fried plantain, I am done. Oh my gosh. Done. I think I just look at fried plantain and it goes to my hips. So I have to oh. be very disciplined. Oh my gosh. <laughs> The best dish in the world. It's the best, definitely. All right, thanks for making me hungry. <laughs> Enjoy your show today. Thank you so much, Femi. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of Africa State of Mind. I hope that you enjoy listening to this podcast as much as we enjoy putting it together for you. And once again, a big shout out to all of the amazing people um, from around the amazing continent of Africa, uh, you know, who are really doing their part with regards to changing the narrative. Don't forget that you can interact with us um, on our Twitter handle at Africa State Mind. You can also join the Africa State of Mind group on Facebook. And please remember to rate us um, on iTunes. Let us know how it is that you think that we're doing. And if you have any ideas for any guests or people from your particular country uh, within the continent of Africa that are really changing the narrative, please be sure to share it with us. That's all we have for time for today. My name is Lika Sumba, Africa State of Mind. We'll be back next week with another great episode. Head to lifepodcasts.fm to find out more on the positive changes people are making on the continent in Africa State of Mind. Subscribe to this podcast at livepodcasts.fm or on your favorite podcast app. Subscribing to a live podcast is free.